Welcome everyone to another episode of Not Your Average Music Therapist. And today I'm very excited to have another not so average music therapist on the podcast. And with me here is Sarah Kleiman. And she has a cool story of being a music therapist and then going a different direction and doing some really cool work um, nowadays. So Sarah, would you tell us maybe a little bit about yourself and what you are currently doing now? And then we can dive into um, what brought you there. Yeah, love to. So um, currently, I work as a child and family therapist for a nonprofit in Rochester, New York. It's actually one of the oldest um, child welfare nonprofits in the country. Um, things like the foster care system and the family court system were started at the same time that our agency started. So, um, we have just deep, deep roots to child welfare work. Um, my program works specifically with kids zero to six who've been impacted by pretty significant trauma. And we work, um, with babies, toddlers, young, like preschool age kiddos and their caregivers, uh, to work on, healing and growth and uh, strive towards optimal development after significant trauma. So that's a little bit about my work currently. I've been um, with my agency for about six years. Um, So cool. Yeah, yeah, and I... uh, Like a nice nice chunk of time there. (laughs) It is a nice chunk of time. It's sometimes a little surreal to recognize, like, wow, I've been here for a hot minute. You know, I was in my mm-hmm. previous job before I came here for probably about three years, and that felt like a really long time. Um, you know, and I had, like, nannied all throughout college with the same family, and that felt like a long time. But there's something about being here with this agency um, and just really, like, putting roots down professionally, mm-hmm. and it just feels like home. Like, I found my professional home, ah, which so is a, cool. yeah, it's, it's a good feeling. I love you saying that um, you put roots down because I feel like in the professional world, we can all like get these jobs to get paid and make a living and support ourselves. But it's like there's something different when we fully commit to the job and we're like, you know, this is this is something that I'm going to care about. I'm going to work hard at. I'm going to show up with my full self at. So, I mean, I, (laughs) I think even, you know, we're in our first like minute of the episode, but that was, that's like such a beautiful thing to sit with. And for, you know, for the listeners to be like, you know, am I putting, am I setting roots down here at this job? Do I care enough about it? Or am I thinking about where am I going to be next? So, yeah. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I was, uh, I was you know, telling you before we, we hit record um, that I was thinking a bit about this this morning and, um, you know, talking a bit to my husband about it. And, you know, it was occurring to me just how surreal it is to have this conversation at this point in time, because I, I can think back to, um, you know, when I made the decision, <clears throat> excuse me, to when I made the decision to go back to school in my, you know, in my twenties. Um, you know, I was like, I want to do this music therapy thing. And so I, I did, and I can remember, um, 
my why around that was always to work with young kids impacted by trauma. Um, it was always to do the work that I'm doing right now. And for years before I took, um, so I worked in a different, uh, position within my agency for a number of years before taking the position that I have now. And, um, for a long time, I would drive by, uh, the building that I'm literally currently sitting in right now at the Pavona Child Advocacy Center. And, um, I love the building. I love the work that Pavona was doing. And, um, I so wanted to be a part of that. And then it was like magic, my agency and the Child Advocacy Center, like, came together, they wrote a grant, um, they created this new sub-program, and um, I was like, me, me, I want to do that, that's what I want to do, and, um, like, here I am in my office doing the work that I've always wanted to do from, like, the second that I made the decision to do this music therapy thing, um, and, you know, kind of all of the turns that that journey has taken has brought me right here, right now, and um, so, yeah, it just feels so surreal to acknowledge that and then to be here and to talk about it. Like Mm -hmm. that, you know, that's so cool because I feel like so many of us just find ourselves along the way and we don't know where we want to end up. And like, I was talking with my friend Mabel a couple of weeks ago um, on the podcast too. And she kind of made her way almost like accidentally she didn't know what she really wanted to do and how she wanted to get there and what kind of people she wanted to work with um and she ended up with she she's now working as a hospice music therapist and getting her social work degree um and she's fall, like she's fallen in love with it she loves the work but she had no idea that that's where she would be now so hearing you say like you always knew that you wanted to work with this kind of um, people and this kind of way. Like, what a wise young person you must have been <laughs> to know, like, what felt right and 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 what you wanted to do. Like, I don't. That's. I don't know if that's really common. That is so so cool. Yeah, I mean, wow. I. I can't take full credits. My, my mother is an art therapist. And when she, mm. um, was, she like went back to school much later in life. And so she was in her forties and fifties when she was, um, you know, finishing up her master's degree. And she, uh, was telling me like, you know, there's this music therapy thing. I think you could think that that might be like a thing you would consider doing with your life. And I initially, I was maybe like 19 at the time. And I was like, no, I don't think whatever it is that you're suggesting is like not, I don't want to do that. Right. I want to do anything but the thing you're suggesting. And then at 23, I was like, you know, I read this article about the impact of music on the brain. And I think, um, you know, I think maybe I want to do this music therapy thing you told me about four years ago. That Um, is so good. Yeah. (laughs) So then you're like, oh, well. I guess mom always knows best. (laughs) She does. (sighs) It's really, really frustrating. (laughs) Um, Were you you in school before you um, went into music therapy? 
So I, right out of high school, I went to a state school. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I was really good at writing. I've always been a really strong writer. And so I majored in English composition. It seemed like, sure, let's do that. Um, and me in college didn't really get down the first time. Um, you know, doing other things with my time uh, mm -hmm. and being a wayward young person was really <laughs> kind of more the path for me at the time. So I, um, yeah, I did uh, some wayward things. I flunked out of college and um, I went to a lot of music festivals. I went to a mm -hmm. lot of like raves and, um, you know, I was you know, very much into, like, the music and partying scene for, um, mm -hmm. a long time. I, you know, I think that was just the path I needed to take, and I needed to do some wayward things, and, um, I found myself at about 22, I was working at a laundromat, um, and for whatever reason, the owner thought it was a good idea to make a 22-year-old the manager of his laundromat. Um, <laughs> so here I was, the manager of a laundromat, and, you know, it's like 6.45 in the morning, and I'm opening the laundromat, and I just had this moment of clarity of, like, if I don't do something, <laughs> I'm going to be working at a laundromat for a really long time, and, like, that just doesn't feel like the path for me. Um, like, I just... Mm -hmm. I don't think I... I don't want to be doing this forever. Um, I really yeah. do want to do something that, you know, fills me up, like something that mm -hmm. has meaning to me. Um, and I didn't know what that would look like or what that was exactly, but I knew that I would have to go to school. Um, so sure. I went back to, uh, to a community college and um, I had to pay out of pocket for several semesters to get the grades back up to re-earn yeah. financial aid and... Um, somewhere in that process, I found, I, like I said, I, I read this article about the impact of music on the brain and, um, just because of some of my own childhood experiences and growing up in sort of a dysfunctional family, um, you know, I feel like I know firsthand what unresolved trauma, uh, just how that wreaks havoc on your life. I mean, there's a you know, very real mm -hmm. reason that I spent, mm -hmm. you know, three, four years as a, a wayward young person, um, and just this idea that, huh, you could use music in, like, this really intentional way to process some of this. And, yeah. you know, I couldn't tell you what this article was, where it was, what it said, but it was just talking about how, because of the way that music impacts the brain, you can process unresolved trauma um, in a way that verbal processing just doesn't, it just can't, can't do um, and I was just mm. hooked by this idea because for me as a kid, yeah. music was always like, it felt like home for me. Um, making music, yeah. listening to music, you know, being a wayward young person going to music festivals, um, like it just clicked for me and it felt like, huh, I'm really interested in psychology. I'm really interested in like trauma work and working with people impacted by trauma and I'm interested in music. And so it just felt like, yep, this is, I'm going to do it, and I put my mind to it, and, um, it happened. That, that's so cool. I love how music's just, like, been this, this constant through your life, and then it's, like, almost as if it pulled you into this, um, 
this career path um, to find your way, to help you find your way. Um, And I know I didn't mention this at the beginning of the podcast, but I know Sarah because we went to school together. (laughs) We were in school for music therapy at the same time. Um, That is when and where our paths crossed. So it's, it's really cool to have someone on the, on the podcast who, you know, I knew for a brief period of time and I've just seen like bits and pieces of your life ever since. So it's cool to see, um, you know, where life has taken you and how you got there. Cause you know, we never actually sat down and had this conversation. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm so glad we're having it now. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know. I think even in, if I think back to like our time in undergrad together, I think I was so in it and I was so focused on like one foot in front of the other, like, like just, this is what's happening. I mean, music school is a beast of an experience. Um, I mean, it's just, um, there's really nothing like it. Even for me, like grad school didn't, I mean, it's its own beast, but in many ways, music school was much, much harder. Um, yeah. And I don't know. I think that it's taken like years of like self-reflection and like looking back of like, yep, this is, this is what was driving me this whole time. And like this, mm. I don't know. It's like a, the heartthrob within you or something yeah, like, pushing yeah. you forward. So cool. So you went to school, you became a music therapist. Um, so I'm really curious to hear you know, how was your time as a music therapist? Because you're not, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not really doing music therapy now, right? No, I use music, um, you know, honestly, at this point, I'm using music very little because my role, um, I have very limited, like, direct service that I'm doing right now. My role is predominantly Mm -hmm. supervising and doing some, like, program development. I have a very small caseload. Um, in my previous role within this agency, I was doing a lot of crisis intervention, um, with music, but yeah. So I left undergrad, um, went off to my internship. I was in a pediatric setting, um, which I really, really liked. Um, and I was just convinced that that was going to be like, that was going to be my path. Like, um, Mm -hmm. I just, I really liked working in that setting. I was doing some uh, PICU work, NICU work, um, pediatric palliative work. Um, and I, I was really, really enjoying it. Um, I thought, I think, I think I thought that I was enjoying it. I think I was like talking myself into enjoying it. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and you're probably still enjoying parts of it. Yeah. Maybe those were the parts that, I was definitely still enjoying We're parts of it. Keeping you going. I yeah. think that throughout school and, um, you know, even even now, I've just had this experience of seeing <clears throat> other music therapists. And I think, you know, the grass is always greener, right? Like, it always seems mm-hmm. like somebody else is having an easier time than you are. But it just felt throughout school, throughout internship, because um, there was a few of us from my graduating class who were all doing pediatric internships. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, then even when I was first working as a music therapist, it just, something was missing. Like, it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. Um, 
But it yeah. seemed like for other people, it was something was clicking for them that wasn't clicking for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I remember in my internship, um, you know, we would be part, we would do these uh, like pediatric palliative care team meetings. And, um, you know, there was music therapy, art therapy, child life, social work, um, and then like a whole bunch of medical folks. And in my supervisions, my, my supervisor pointed out to me that when I would be talking about cases, when I would be talking about these, these team meetings we were having, like I, I, it often just felt to her, like I was really identifying and resonating with what the social worker was talking about and what the social worker had to say. And I, I just hadn't even, I hadn't noticed. Um, Mm -hmm. and then, you know, a couple months later I was starting to do some, um, like job searching, you know, I was coming to the end of internship. I was scheduled my MTBC exam and every, every job posting that interested me required an MSW, every single one. Um, and so it was just started to become this like no brainer of like, well, I'm getting this feedback that I seem to be really aligning with a social work perspective. Every job I want needs the MSW. Like, I think maybe I need to think about getting, getting a master's in social work. Like this just, it's, it's starting to feel like a no brainer. Um, and so sort of at the same time that I was kind of embarking on being a music therapist and standing on my own two feet and doing that for the first time, I was also embarking on this decision to get my MSW. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I felt really aware of this. There was like a disconnect of Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to like stand on your own two feet and to feel really and truly and authentically able to do this music therapy thing and identify with being a music therapist while also acknowledging like I'm getting a degree in something else and when I tell people this when I tell other music therapists this they tend to ask questions or make statements to me more or less around like why are you leaving like why are you jumping ship Mm -hmm. you're leaving music therapy because you're getting a degree in something else even though for me it felt like just there's a, there was a very obvious marriage for me, um, yeah, you know, yeah. even just in who I am as a person. Like, I am a musician. Music has always been a piece of my my journey and who I am. But I'm also, like, deeply grounded in just the foundations of social work and of mm-hmm. social justice. Thinking about uh, power, privilege, oppression, intersectionality. Um, and to me, these things just have a perfect marriage. And so it, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel to me like leaving, but yeah, that didn't seem true for anybody that I would tell. So it just felt like a very confusing time. Um, yeah. And like trying to figure out what my, my professional identity was. Um, yeah. Yeah, it was, a, it was a very confusing and very lonely time, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was working mm-hmm. a contract job and... Um, you know, I, I didn't really have much supervision. I didn't really have much connection back to the larger, like, team of, of music therapists that were part of this, um, like, contract agency I was working for, and yeah, 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 I'm, I'm sort of struck right now of just how lonely it was and how, Mm -hmm. and even when you tried to connect and tell people about 
where you wanted to or how you wanted to move forward it it seemed like you didn't get the support or excitement that you had hoped for yeah yeah I think the responses I was getting I don't know what I hoped for necessarily I think the Mm. you know the people who are close to me um including you know good very good friends who are music therapists they were all very supportive and um it'd be more just you know people who I kind of knew or didn't know at all or um and yeah, I don't know what I was hoping for, but I was surprised at how, um, like, they seemed to take it personally. Like, huh. that, like, yeah. I was rejecting music therapy and, like, therefore rejecting them or something. Um, yeah. You know, just the the number of times that I've had somebody say to me, well, you're not really a music therapist anymore. It's like, mm. hmm, well, I have an MTBC, so I think... <laughs> I think I still am a music therapist. Yeah. I feel pretty yeah. confident that, like, from a legal, ethical standpoint, <laughs> I have the credential, so. From an educational yeah. and <laughs> credentialed standpoint, no, I am a music therapist. <laughs> yeah. But, like, if you get a degree in something else, if you have a job that doesn't say yeah. music therapist in the title, you, you somehow don't, like, get to be part of a club anymore or something. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, which is been interesting and I think that yeah there's been a shift the past couple of years I think more and more and more music therapists are um choosing to get master's degrees in other disciplines Mm -hmm. specifically Mm -hmm. um I I mean tons and tons of folks have been getting MSWs and I think Mm. it feels a a little less um lonely (laughs) Mm -hmm. now um I also think I have more ego strength around it now but um yeah, there was, there was something about that decision and that particular point in time, and um, it just never dawned on me when I, you know, made the decision to get my MSW that other music therapists would seem like, like their feelings would be heard about it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that I was rejecting the field. I was rejecting being a music therapist. I was abandoning the yeah. field. Um, that was a surprise. Huh. Yeah. And I feel like your experience is not, um, like, I feel like a lot of other people who have had that same experience and feeling around stepping into a different field while still being a music therapist and trying to figure out how those two things can can still work hand in hand and be part of you and what you do. It's it's too bad that you, you know, had to go through such a lonely time when you were just doing what felt right and the you know the best thing for you and and for your professional career and development. It it's really interesting like feeling the things that come up um around other music therapists. It's almost like you have to watch what you say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I feel that all the time, and, you know, that's part of why I started this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I think, um, I don't know, I've always had this, um, even when I was in school, even, like, before making the decision to... Yeah, 
to get at MSW, like, of just this walking on eggshells thing, of um, mm. just feeling like if you're not um, loudly and enthusiastically being a music therapy cheerleader, then, like, mm-hmm. you're doing a disservice or, like, you're not, you can't be part of the club. Um, mm. And I do... Like, it only looks like this one thing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had um, an interesting conversation with a, a few colleagues of mine who are music therapists, but, you know, have also gotten degrees in other things and, you know, who don't, don't really practice as music therapists currently, um, of just this, we've had this shared experience of, at times it feels like the music therapy community is having an existential, like, identity crisis, <laughs> Um, and it's so true. And it's like, I just, like if the field as a whole, if the community as a whole could just be mm-hmm. a person, I like, I just want to give them a hug and tell them it'll be okay. And, mm, um, yeah. I think That's that there's, so I, I just, I look at some, like some other music therapists that I know who they're feeling the weight of the need to advocate for themselves and their place in the world and the field mm. and the role of music therapy. Um, like they feel the weight of that so heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously social work was like a calling for me. Um, and it was the clearest way to get my foot in the door of doing child welfare work. Um, like working with kids who've experienced trauma, but you know, there's also these very real, like these just realities of of being a music therapist that even if I didn't feel this calling in this other direction I don't think I could have stayed because it just Mm. wouldn't be sustainable and one of them was this advocacy thing like I just don't have it in me to be justifying why my role is important Mm -hmm. you know I think Mm -hmm. like advocacy is something I care deeply about and I do a lot of in my work but it's not advocacy mm-hmm. around me or my role or why my work is important. It's about, like, what yeah. kids need. It's, like, around what my right, clients right. need, and I can advocate around that um, in, like, yeah. family court systems or in just different child welfare systems. Um, but this particular type of advocacy is just... Just thinking about it makes me exhausted. Like, having to have an elevator yeah. speech prepared and, you know, being prepared to answer questions in the grocery store about what music therapy is, like... Mm -hmm. it's just exhausting just to think about um and I think you couple that with um the like physical realities of music therapy music therapy is a physically demanding job um yeah you know I this is another thing I was thinking about this morning so I I have a I have a bad back I threw my back out over Mm -hmm. the weekend actually and um I was thinking back to the first time I threw my back out like this was (laughs) during this very lonely time when I was, um, Mm. working as a music therapist and, um, I had to take like three weeks off of work unpaid because I couldn't drive, I couldn't get in my car. I couldn't drive anywhere. Um, and then once I was able to be in the car, like standing and holding a guitar for hours on end and like the Mm -hmm. bending and the squatting and like just all of these different things, like, yeah, it was so physically challenging um yeah you know I have uh I'm a very injury prone person um you know I I, it started in college with just how you know uh 
hours and hours and hours and hours in the practice room and I ended up with all these repetitive mm-hmm. strain injuries and um so I don't know I think there's like a sustainable sustainability thing for me um yeah both around this ad- advocacy and justifying your place in the world and then also the physical demands of the job and like lugging all of this stuff around all of the time because um you know, particularly in contract positions, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have a space that was mine. People couldn't come to me. I had to go right. to them, um, which is something mm-hmm. I believe in anyway. I believe very deeply in, like, home-based work and meeting mm-hmm. clients where they're at. But um, there's a really big difference between carrying, like, a single-play therapy bag versus a guitar and a bag of drums and a bag of shakers and, like, yeah, all of that stuff. So, I don't know. I think I would just yeah. be remiss if I didn't comment on a couple of those pieces as well because I do think right um you know we are a field with really high um oh what is that word where people leave the field really early there's a word for that oh I don't remember what the word is doesn't matter I was gonna say burnout (laughs) yeah I mean burnout is yeah definitely definitely a thing yeah it is is simple like it's exhausting it's exhausting to have to like show up and you've, mm-hmm. you know, you have to learn all that repertoire and, like, lug all your stuff everywhere and, like, convince everyone that you deserve to be there and that what you're doing yeah. matters. Like, oh, And it's, like, never-ending, too. Yeah. Because the next family member you see, you're going to have to tell them about all of this. Yeah. Um, and the next free day you have, you're going to have to improve your skills. Or right. work on, you know. Yeah. It's, it, it, it really is something that can be so consuming um, if you're not careful or if you don't have the right support system or, um, I mean, just in general. Yeah. <laughs> that's how, that's how it is. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. I'm reminded, um when I was at my internship at the pediatric hospital, I had, you know, like a little cart that I would push around that had all my like stuff on it. Oh, I love that That cart was like my saving grace. Um, (laughs) I loved that cart. Anyway, I'm like on the elevator with my little cart and there was a maintenance guy and he had his like maintenance cart and he looks over at me and he like, (laughs) like looks at all of my instruments and he like, I don't know, I made this like snarky face I and mean, kind of says to me, just, like, dripping with, like, condescension. He's like, so, can you actually play all those instruments? Oh, God. And, like, I just was in such a, like, internship was so hard. Like, working full-time yeah. at internship and then also working full-time. Not, well, not quite full-time, but, like, working to try and pay my bills. Because internship yeah. is not paid. Right. Um, so I was just, like in a very snarky place myself that day. And so kind of without skipping a beat, I just said to him, like, do you know how to use all those tools on your cart? Like, <laughs> yeah. and he was like, well, yeah, of course I do. And I was like, yeah, well, of course I can play all of these. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that's, that's just great. like Tuesday morning. Like that's right. Right. Just another day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's it's such advocacy is such a huge part of um the you know, being a music therapist and 
even if you don't want it to be, you know, even if you aren't the one networking or presenting or doing those bigger advocacy pieces, it's like, it will always be part of the day to day just because it's not understood and that's okay, you know, but it is so taxing. Yeah. It doesn't feel like there's a a lot of choice around it. It's not like mm-hmm. you can choose to opt in, you know, right. by like giving a training or giving an in-service or whatever like formal advocacy it is. Like, yeah, you know, it's as simple as somebody asking you like, Oh, so what do you do for a living? And you have to, you have to t- answer. <laughs> yep. And, um, yeah, you know, like it's it's usually not a, a short It's not a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. No. Like you can say, Oh, no. I'm a music therapist and people are like, What the heck is that? Mm-hmm. I wonder if there would be a different way to say it that would be simple and <laughs> You know, like I wonder if would it be different if we said, Oh, I'm a musician and I'm a therapist. Yeah, that's I don't know. I But then it wouldn't like I don't know. That probably wouldn't wouldn't really encompass all of what music therapy is. Maybe some music therapists would get upset at me wanting to say that to people. <laughs> it's more, it's more walking on eggshells. I mean, I'm thinking just now, like, so, um, you know, in the world of trauma therapists, we, we yeah. all have our own little, like, elevator speeches because, you know, like, sure. I'm getting my hair cut or, like... I've had this happen actually a couple of times, getting my eyebrows waxed, where, uh, you know, it's just like it's a stranger and they're trying to make chit chat. It's like, oh, so what do you do for a living? And they're right in your face. Right in my face. And um, (laughs) I don't really want in this moment to talk Mm -hmm. about how I work with really young children who've been impacted by really significant trauma because even just saying that out loud can sometimes traumatize the person I'm telling because they don't... It's not the time and place. Yeah, it's just not the time and place. And so I'll say something like, oh, I'm a social worker, really vaguely. And then they'll be like, oh, like, what do you, you know, they won't leave it there. Who do you work with? Who do you work with and what do you do? And so, you know, that'll try like, oh, like, I work with kids, (laughs) Like, that doesn't work either. Um, you know, I, I can remember one particular experience where we we did this little go-around for a couple of minutes. This trying. was still the eyebrow person? Yeah, eyebrow, it was an eyebrow yes. person. It's happened, like, three different <laughs> eyebrow people. So, on this particular one, I was like, oh, I'm a social worker. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, like what, do you, like, what do you do? Do you work in a school? I was like, no, um, I work mostly with kids in foster care. And then they're like, oh, that's great. You helped them get adopted. I'm like, well, no, <laughs> that's not That's not quite what You're I do. You're like, do you want to go into it? Right. <laughs> Are like, you mentally ready for it? Right. <laughs> and then invariably oh. we get there and then they're like, oh, that's so sad. I don't know how you could oh, do that. Like, yeah. bless you. And it's like, I, I just yeah. wanted to get my eyebrows waxed. Right, right. So, I didn't think that this was going to be the whole thing. The whole thing. So that's happened to me, definitely with having worked in hospice care. Yeah, I'm like at at the hairdresser too, where I'm getting my hair cut, and they're like, "What do you do?" And I'm like, "Music therapist." Oh, what is that? Who do you work with? You know, like the whole thing, which is good. But then I say, "I work with people on hospice care," and then it's like instant tears. Yes, my grandfather, and I'm like, I know. 
okay. And then you feel like you have to be there for them too, to support them through all the emotions that are coming up for them. Cause they didn't expect to be crying today while they're cutting your hair, waxing your brows. Like, right. Right. And then we're in a position of like, Oh, I actually Mm -hmm. was trying to do this nice thing for myself. And now I'm holding your emotional experience, and that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> this is what I signed up for, I think. Right? This yes. comes with the territory of doing, oh, like, so working true. with, uh, you know, provocative populations. Like, yeah. I think there actually, there are some, my mom and I talk about this, because, you know, she's an art therapist. She's worked predominantly um, in, like, hospice care, and mm. there are some interesting, yeah, I'm going to go with the word interesting, um, <laughs> ways that we collectively as a society think about people at the end of their life and also Mm -hmm. the ways that we think about really young children who've um experienced abuse and neglect like Mm -hmm. um it's just something we don't want to think about it's just too hard um Mm -hmm. you know we joke sometimes in my program I was telling you earlier my office is in a basement it's like literally underground and like this is where we this is where we put people who work with really young children <laughs> who've experienced really significant trauma because that's like you, you know we have to like stay shove away it. from the world yeah just like shove it in the basement where we don't have to think about it um, just like shove it away and you know I think that's true with like death and dying too like put it over yeah, there for sure like shut the door we can't talk about that so mm-hmm. yeah I think there's a lot of parallels unless you want to go there and you are mentally stable enough to support yourself through hearing this then okay sure I will tell you all of the stories yeah and it will be a really cool experience for you to hear new things and how this amazing work happens and whatnot but that's funny yeah (laughs) your brows (laughs) yeah you know like I just you know trying to run a quick errand get my brows done and you know, like ruining this person's day, talking about kids in uh, foster care. <laughs> so good. I love it. It's such a good story, too. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, through your experiences um, doing music therapy work, figuring out um, what kind of work you really want to do and that feels most fulfilling to you. And now having this moment where you feel so, I, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but where you feel so fulfilled in your work. Um, Like, was it all worth it for you? And, you know, what, how do you think about, you know, this whole journey that that you've been on to get where you are right now? That's a great question. It's kind of a loaded question. It is a loaded question, but I think it's a good question. (laughs) Take your time and pick it apart if you want. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think... You know, I can think back to just very difficult times in my life, um, whether it was during my wayward years where I just, I was aware that I was wayward and that, like, that path wasn't sustainable um, and wasn't what I wanted to be doing, you know, when I made the decision to go back to school, um, when I made the decision to go to music school and... Mm-hmm. Um, I remember walking into one of my first classes and I was, you know, like 24, 25 years old and I was with college freshmen. Um, and at mm, that age, yeah. like, 
that's a huge age difference. Um, and yeah. so I just felt like such a fish out of water. And, um, I mean, music school, period, no matter when you go, it's a beast. It's really hard. Um, and then kind of, you know, never really feeling like I'd found somewhere where I fit. Like, I hadn't found mm-hmm. the right spot for me. And just yeah. the constant throughout all of that was just this in, intense belief that, like, this will all work out. Like, mm-hmm. this is all yeah. this is all going to work itself out. This is really hard right now, and I don't know that I can keep going. But, like, it doesn't feel like a choice to not keep going. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just, it's all going to work out. Um, and I didn't know when or how or where, um, and it's interesting, even once I, you know, I got my MSW and I was at the, you know, you know, I've been with this agency for several years. And even though I knew the agency was the right fit and the right place for me, um, the position that I had for many, many years, it wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the right fit for Mm -hmm. me. And there was ways in which I knew that and I, I could sort of articulate it. And there was ways in which... I just felt stuck and, like, immobilized and, like, I couldn't do anything to change it. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I, I live in the same neighborhood where um, the Child Advocacy Center is, and I drive by it all the time. I walk by it all the time, and I just always felt like this building was calling me. <laughs> I, I, mm. I just felt such a connection to it, and mm-hmm. I don't know, it was like this surreal feeling when I heard that my agency was going to partner with the Child Advocacy Center. It was going to be creating this brand new program, doing the exact thing I've always wanted to do. Mm. Um, And it was just like, this, this, this is it. Like, this Mm -hmm. is the thing that was like, I have been searching for and professionally like moving towards all of these years if this opportunity would have presented itself five years ago I wouldn't have been ready I wouldn't have been um I wouldn't even had the experience that I needed like I needed all of these different pieces that were hard and really unpleasant and that were not always very fulfilling um like, I needed all of those things to happen in the way that they did, in the order that they did, to bring me here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was interesting for the years that I worked in my previous role within um, the agency. Like, it was such a bizarre juxtaposition of knowing that um, this agency is, like, coming home to me. Like, it just feels like, you know, I always joke, I'm a lifer. Like, I am I will be here for the, my entire career. I love it here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't love my job. Like, I I loved yeah. the agency. I loved the work that we were doing. Um, I love just the philosophies and the, way, the ways of being um, here. But the job itself wasn't quite right, and I didn't know what to do about it. Um, mm. And that was your first social work-specific job? Yep. Yeah. So I was hired out of my Mm. internship. Um, I had two internships in grad school. Um, One was at a suburban high school. And that's when I learned that um, I am not meant for school settings. Like, really definitively, me in school settings, no thank you. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I also sort of learned, like, I don't think me and teenagers are, like... (laughs) the right population either because I just get really yeah. snarky with them and it's hard yeah. for me to like 
like there's elements of working with teenagers I do really like because I mm-hmm. um I think developmentally it's just a very funny point in time and mm-hmm. but it also is just like hmm I don't think that I could do this the school thing or the high school thing yeah. uh like the high school age thing that like that's not the right fit um but like I needed to have that experience to know that um mm-hmm. you know and then I came to um I I got an internship at the agency I'm at now and um like it just pretty quickly felt really different than anywhere else I'd worked anywhere else that I had interned or I'd you know I'd done like a practical placement and you know like the exact job the exact work it wasn't quite right but mm-hmm. like I knew that this was the place for me this was the larger place mm-hmm. for me and it was funny yeah. like I applied for a position and you know I knew there was like an expansion that was going on so they were hiring for a, a I think maybe eight people and um I knew I had a really good shot like but everybody would be starting on April 1st and um it was getting to be about May or March 1st and we didn't know yet we didn't have any answers but like I you know, I, I needed to put in four weeks at my previous job. Like, I just wasn't going to be a schmuck. Like, I, you know, I'm going to put in yeah. four weeks. But it was, like, yeah. getting down to the wire. And so I just took this leap of faith. I put in my notice without even knowing if I had a job. Wow. And um, it was terrifying. And <laughs> it was a Were really... you like, okay, if all else fails, I'm going to go back to the wire? Yeah, I would go back. And, like, my <laughs> the director who I worked for, like, she would have been more than happy for me to just Mm -hmm. stay and um (laughs) but like it felt like a very risky leap of faith that my my well there were several people in my life who were like did you really do that like that's really irresponsible I was like well I I don't know like I can't put in less than four weeks notice because that feels icky to me and Mm -hmm. I just have to trust that this is going to work out and it did um wow Wow. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> I feel like this, like, your whole journey has been, like, trust your gut, trust your gut. Like, like you have such a strong intuition for all of these, all of the turns and twists and steps that you've taken. Um, yeah, how cool is that? It's so cool. Mm. Yeah, I feel like trusting my gut was not always something that like came easily for me I think Mm. there's lots and lots of ways that um girls in particular are really taught and like indoctrinated to not trust our guts um and to like just do what's expected of us and to um Mm. I don't know just for, for any number of reasons that happens and I think it took me a really, really long time to kn- to find that, to be able to listen to it, and then to trust it. Um, to just know that, like, my internal compass, like, will never steer me wrong. Um, yeah. And that doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be easy. It probably means that things are mm-hmm. going to be really hard, um, much harder yeah. than if I would just kind of go with the path of least resistance. Um, mm-hmm. But... I don't know. I, I had a couple of experiences in my personal life um, 
where I was just out of integrity with myself. I was doing what I thought I was mm-hmm. supposed to do. I was doing um, what seemed like the easier thing to do at the time. Um, and it was so intolerable to be out of integrity mm. with myself. Um, wow. And I sort of just vowed, like, never again. Um, mm-hmm. And that was, that was in 2013. Um, and just never again like I need to trust my gut and mm-hmm. um like my gut won't steer me wrong other people might yeah. not like it and it might not be easy but like I have to be in integrity with myself yeah yeah that's awesome um I know that that you talk a lot about um supervision and that's been a huge part of your life and now you have the privilege of of being that supervisor for other people. Was that part of, you know, the process to trust your gut and find your intuition and follow that? Or is that a separate thing? Hmm, that's a good question. But I have to just say, like, yes, let's talk about supervision. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Let's just talk about that. I figured we wouldn't we wouldn't finish our conversation before yeah. talking about supervision. We definitely have to go there. I feel like I've made my um, thoughts and feelings about this like pretty well known <laughs> over the years, and like you know, publicized them on like Music Therapist Unite and Yes, um, <laughs> it's a place to be. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, like, I said it earlier, like, before we started hitting record, like, I just cannot Mm -hmm. keep my mouth shut. I can't keep my opinions (laughs) to myself. Like, I just can't. So. And I love that. So. (laughs) Great. Great. Here we are. Let's Here we go. (laughs) Supervision. So, yeah, I think. So the agency that I'm at is deeply rooted in um, something called infant mental health. And a part of infant mental health is um, something called reflective supervision. So it's a a very particular um, supervision model. Um, And it, sort of at the heart of it, is just inviting everybody, the supervisee, the supervisor, we're all whole people. Um, Mm -hmm. And if you're not... um, kind of welcoming both parts of yourself into the space, your personal, you know, who you are in your personal life, who you are in your professional life. Um, if you don't bring all of yourself in, um, it's still going to be there. It's just going to start coming out in weird ways. Um, so mm. my part of, part of what felt so clear to me in coming to this agency and knowing like, this this is the place for me. Even if this is maybe not quite the right job, this overall is the place for me, and it's because mm-hmm. of reflective supervision. Um, I had never mm-hmm. experienced anything like it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my, my experiences as a music therapist, as a music therapy intern, as a music therapy student, um, I had some great supervisors, um, and I had some really terrible supervisors, which is, you know, how it, it's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. But even the really great supervisors I, I had, um, like, they weren't really receiving supervision. Like, they weren't, mm-hmm. excuse me, they weren't receiving support around being a supervisor or having 
a student or an intern um, and parallel process exists whether we acknowledge it or not so you know if I am a music therapist and I'm receiving supervision from somebody who's not receiving supervision like their needs are not being met like they're they're mm-hmm. not being supported in the ways that they, they need to be supported how are they supposed to support me how are they mm-hmm. supposed to like support me in my work and if my needs aren't being met how do I then go and support the needs of my clients Um, and for, you know, for me doing work with really young children, I'm often working with caregivers. If I can't support the caregiver, they are then in turn not able to meet the needs of the child. Um, so it's just the lack of supervision and lack of access to supervision in music therapy, particularly within the mid-Atlantic region, is troubling. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's very troubling. Um, I think Mm -hmm. there's been a shift for all kinds of very legitimate reasons, um, particularly in, in the greater Rochester area, um, in like a contract direction, there are not that many positions that are like mm-hmm. salaried full-time music therapy positions where, su- you know, having something like supervision is mm-hmm. built in, like that just doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to access supervision, you have to pay for it. Um, yeah. But, you know, when I think about my time as a contract worker, you know, we followed the school calendar, so I had 10 unpaid weeks off a year, you know, mm. I couldn't afford mm. to pay for supervision. Like, there, there was just, there's just no way. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, in thinking about this, this question of, was the process of having supervision and having reflective supervision specifically um, part of the process for me of, like, learning to trust my gut and learning to, um, you know, f- tune back into like my internal compass. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the super short answer is yes. Um, yeah. It's hard to say, you're like, it's hard to untangle how much of that is like reflective supervision as a model, how much of it is the person sure. who was my supervisor. We, you know, she was my supervisor for five years. And so we had just a lot of history and context together and then also just how much of it was regular supervision, period, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just having, like, dedicated space every single week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we we have weekly individual supervision and weekly group supervision, and they're both mandatory. Oh, like, it's cool. just not, it's not a choice. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I don't know. It's, like, it's hard to untangle all of those things, but I do yeah. think that the the process and the practice of reflective supervision um, gave me the space that I needed to unpack and unlearn some of the things that just were not serving me from my education, mm-hmm. from previous jobs, mm-hmm. um, and to figure out who am I authentically like who who am I particularly around this question of like am I a social worker am I a music therapist am I um a child and family therapist like what what am I how do I Mm. make all of these things fit together um Mm -hmm. you know and how do I integrate all of these different things you know I think supervision is just so critical to that um and it when I 
when I think about the reality of um, access to supervision within the music therapy community, like, it's just heartbreaking to me. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think about some responses that I've had from other music therapists, you know, when I tell them that I work for an agency that prioritizes supervision and that it's individual and it's group and there are monthly supervision groups around particular Mm -hmm. topics, Um, you know, and the, some of the responses have just been, well, that's really nice for you guys over there, but that's just not possible for the rest of us. And it's like, yes, it is, it is possible. Mm -hmm. And like, we need to Mm -hmm. figure out together how to make it possible. Um, yeah, you know, reflective supervision, no, not reflective supervision, supervision in general, um, supervision is what mitigates against burnout. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the fact that we have such a high rate of burnout in music therapy, I think we need to be taking a really long, hard and deeply critical look at this like supervision thing. Um, because they, I, I just can't untangle them um for myself um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah because besides like the different um difficulties of music therapy in general it seems like that's a big piece that's missing in the professional landscape of music therapy yeah well like what makes work sustainable I think when you're in the helping professions of course it's draining and it's fatiguing and it's Mm -hmm. hard sometimes. And that's totally normal. Like that's normal. And that's okay. Like you can be veering into compassion fatigue territory. You can be veering into like vicarious trauma, trauma territory. And that's all can be healthy and okay. Um, Mm -hmm. but like what, what mitigates, what buffers against burnout? Um, what makes the work sustainable? Um, you know, when I think about my own work, and this isn't, you know, music therapy specific, but, you know, working in the child welfare system, um, there's a lot of, like, living in the gray that has to happen. So, you know, mm-hmm. if, if I've done a lot of work with kids in foster care, and we just don't know, like, we don't know where these kids are going to end up. We don't know, will they be mm-hmm. reunited with their birth family? Are they going to be adopted? Like, what's going to happen to them? And living in that ambiguity with all this ambivalence can be really intolerable. And the only way that I was able to do that work for five years was because I had regular, consistent, predictable Mm -hmm. supervision to unpack all of the ways in which this sucks. It's hard. Um, I don't feel like I can do it anymore. Like I'm just all of these really normal feelings that were coming up. You have, I had to be able to process them. Um, And so without supervision, and I think about other, like, child welfare systems that don't have supervision, their burnout rates are really high, um, yeah. similarly to music therapy. Um, and, like, it just seems like if we could increase access to supervision mm-hmm. just across the helping professions, like, we're yeah. in this conversation <laughs> specifically talking about music in therapy. General. But in general, mm-hmm. like, if there were just better supports in place, you know, I'd be willing to put money down that burnout rates would go would decrease um Mm -hmm. like there just is a very direct correlation there um Mm -hmm. and I it you know I I try to 
I'd like to try to be part of the solution around this. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know... I don't know what the solution is. Um, but it feels mm-hmm. like a big problem that needs the very least to be talked about. Um, mm-hmm. If we're not talking about it, that doesn't make it go away. It's still right. there, even if we're not acknowledging it. So mm-hmm. this is me acknowledging it out loud on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm so grateful for, um, yeah, your honesty about all of that and hearing how it, it has, um, how supervision has impacted your life in, in such a positive and helpful way. Yeah, I feel like it's this thing in the music therapy world where it's like, we know we need it, but we just can't afford it. And so then what do we do? And then we get burnt out and go through (laughs) all this, um, you know, all of these difficulties with our jobs and our positions and our professional lives, whatnot. So, um, yeah, yeah, I... I definitely think this is something that needs to change within the field and just become like a normal thing that is covered no matter what. Um, and like you said, having more employee um, type positions where supervision is just built in. Um, yeah, I've definitely noticed that within myself and my music therapy jobs, I have gotten burnt out much more quickly in jobs that have been contract-based than um, the employee-based jobs because you're just like all alone. <laughs> um, and you, you, you really have to create that support system and, and seek out supervision yourself or else you're just gonna, you know, lose it. So this has been a lovely conversation, getting to know you more and your, you know, this process of, of where you've been and where you are now. It's, it's so cool to hear it all. Um, and I love that we talked about supervision and, you know, how that is the very thing that can curb burnout, um, and how necessary it is. For all of us music therapists, even though we don't want to pay for it, um, you know, we'll be paying for it in some way or another. Um, you know, whether that means losing a job or burning out or whatever, it's like, are you going to pay for supervision or are you going to pay for all of the crap that comes with burning out and, you know, switching jobs and trying to find yourself without a guide um, I will say, I think that at the, at the heart of supervision, at the heart of therapy is relationships. And, mm. um, you know, if someone is not in a position financially or for whatever reason to be able to pay for supervision, there are other ways, other relationships that other, mm. like, other ways to, to get that need met, whether it's starting your own peer supervision group um, or, yeah. you know, just finding finding the support that you need to, like, meet that, that need. You know, it doesn't have to look mm-hmm. like paying somebody for supervision. I will also mm-hmm. say that I do offer pro bono supervision mm-hmm. on a limited basis, so I will just yeah, give I was that ask plug you about as that. well. Mm-hmm. Oh, so cool. 
Yeah. That's awesome. Thank you for for doing that for, and that's specifically for music therapists. Mm-hmm. Yep, specifically cool. for music therapists. I think other folks, it's built in, you know, um, yeah. social workers, yeah. mental health counselors, for any number of, of reasons, it's just built into their job already. Um, and that's not mm. true for music therapists. And, like, this mm-hmm. is a, this is the hill that I'm going to die on, I think. And <laughs> I feel um, just so fortunate um, to have professionally landed somewhere that does embed supervision in, where I'm a salaried employee with yeah. benefits and PTO and all these different things that are just, I'm deeply privileged, and this is a way that I can give back. Um, and so, you know, I have, I have limited um, availability for this, but um, it is something that I do offer kind of on a rotating, yeah. a rotating basis. That's awesome. Um. So is there anything else that you had on your mind today to share? I know we've been we've been at it for a while, so maybe I should just have you back on another time. But <laughs> if there's anything would, else that... I would totally come back because I think that there's just <laughs> always more to say. And I, I know. There's like no way to say it all in an hour. Right. Or the mm-hmm. more than an hour that we've been talking. No, I mean, I... <laughs> I think... I think it's an evolution, you know, and it's an evolving yeah. conversation. And mm-hmm. um, I think what feels so present for me right now in thinking about this podcast and thinking about f- versions and, like, flavors of this conversation that I've had in the past, like, more of us than not feel like not your average music therapist. Like... Mm. More of us than not feel like the odd kid in the corner, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think that that comes back to this existential identity crisis that the Mm -hmm. field has. And, like, hmm, we should dig into that a little. Yeah. That's so good. (laughs) It's always good when you can get the name of the thing, like, slide it in there. Yes. (laughs) That was the best. Because that's what this is all about. It's literally like, you know, when we talk about it, it seems like we all feel this way. So what are we doing about it now? Yeah, we all have imposter syndrome. So yeah, maybe we should just like say that out loud. Yeah, accept it. And then like be okay with other people feeling that way. Yeah. Because yeah. we feel it too. Right. Yeah. Oh, so good. Mm. Thank you for this conversation. I Thank truly you. appreciate you and everything that you shared today. Um, so I want to ask you in general where people can find you if they're looking to connect. And then more specifically, where can people reach out for um, professional supervision? Yeah. So um, folks are welcome to look me up on social media. Um, so... My Instagram handle is Sklai, S-K-L-I-I-I. Um, my Facebook is just my name. There's only two Sarah Climans in the entire United States. So I'm the one that's in Rochester and not in California. <laughs> um, and, yeah, if folks are interested in supervision, they can reach me at my Gmail, which is sarahkleiman at Gmail. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much, Sarah. 
Um, it has really just been a pleasure having this conversation with you and I will definitely, definitely keep you in mind for future conversations because it seems like this one is not over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I think it's a, it's a journey, like the conversation yeah. and there's like no way to like put a period on it because it's just. How can we even end this, this yeah. episode? It's like ongoing but. forever. Ellipsis. thank you for thank you for inviting this conversation I think it's so necessary I think it's so needed um and I am just so appreciative that you're doing this thank you yeah oh you're welcome you know it's it's the conversation that I've been wanting to have for the you know seven plus years that I've been a music therapist that this these conversations this is what keeps me going because I still know that my work is needed in the world and and the music therapy that I do affects people and their families and their lives. So, yeah, these are needed for my life, too, for sure. Well, friends, that has been another episode of Not Your Average Music Therapist. I will see you soon.